Good morning. It's uh, good to be here this morning. We, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a group of us for a night of worship last night. <clears throat> if you weren't able to be there and didn't know about it, if you sign up on our WhatsApp, that's where it went out. We let everyone know we're going to have a, a night of worship over at someone's house, and it was wonderful. And uh, so we'll be doing that again at a time of eating together, time of fellowship, and just a night of worshiping uh, together as a church. And so anyway, let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles this morning. We're actually going to be in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, you can turn to chapter 36. If you don't know where Ezekiel is in your Bible, know this, your Bible has a, a contents. You could look it up and find the page number, but I encourage you to follow along as we go through uh, the Word of God. If you're new with us this morning, we're currently in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're talking about the things to come, end times events, but I'm going to step away this morning from chapter uh, 7 of Revelation and we're going to look at some prophecies from the book of Ezekiel that I think are important for us in our understanding of the things to come, the events to come. I shared last week that Israel needs to be seen as a central figure in our understanding of the events in Revelation. If you don't have an understanding of Israel, if you don't have an understanding of God's promises and covenants that he had made with the nation of Israel, then when you read the book of Revelation, sometimes it gets a little confusing. You're not sure if the church is going through this or if this is speaking of another group, which I believe is going to be the people of Israel, those unbelieving Jews that are going to go into the tribulation period, as well as those who have rejected Christ, who are Gentiles, who also will go into the tribulation period. I titled this morning's message, kind of a long one, Ezekiel's Prophecies Concerning Israel in the Last Days. Now, Ezekiel, his name, just for information, his name means the Lord is my strength. Ezekiel, a prophet of God, was taken into captivity by the Babylonians like Daniel was. Daniel was taken into captivity in 605 B.C., Ezekiel was taken eight years later in the second siege that happened in 597 B.C. Ezekiel also taken into captivity. But like Daniel's prophecies that maybe you have read and maybe you haven't, but like Daniel's prophecies, God gave Ezekiel several visions and prophecies concerning the nation of Israel. These visions and prophecy, they were given, and I want you to wrap your head around this. 
almost 2,600 years ago. That's what's so incredible about the Word of God. One-third of the Bible is prophecy. One-third of what you read in your Scripture has to do with prophecy and then prophecy being fulfilled. This vision that was given to the prophet Ezekiel is what we're going to read about this morning concerning Israel in the last days. We're not going to cover this book of Ezekiel. Uh, We're going to go back to Revelation next week, but we can divide the book of Ezekiel really into three main sections. First, it's the prophecy given to Ezekiel concerning the fall of Jerusalem. You can read about that in chapter 1 to chapter 24. Then it's the judgments on Israel's enemies in chapter 25 to chapter 32. And then lastly, it's the restoration and the future of God's people Israel in chapters 33 to 48. That is the area that I want to deal with this morning. The restoration of the land of Israel and the restoration of God's people, Israel. In 586 BC, the first temple known as Solomon's Temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. 657 years later, The second temple, known as Herod's Temple, was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. Israel today is without a temple. Israel today is looking for a coming Messiah that is going to allow them to rebuild their temple. We'll call it the Tribulation Temple. We'll call it the Third Temple that I believe is literally going to be rebuilt according to prophecy. In this last section of Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesied that the land of Israel would one day be restored and re-inhabited, but that it would also be attacked by the Gentile nations. We need to know that none of the blessings that we read about concerning Israel, God's blessings towards Israel, are because they deserve it. A lot of times people read about the rejection of Israel. They rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They had, and they today live in disbelief in their rejection, but... You see, God's blessing of restoration upon Israel has nothing to do with them deserving it. It all has to do with God's faithfulness to his promises. And aren't you glad as a Christian, how many of you have been unfaithful to the Lord? How many of you have failed in life? And what we know from even looking at the nation of Israel about God's promises to these people, his people whom he loves, is that God will be faithful. He will do what he said he's going to do in spite of their unfaithfulness. 
There was written a book years ago. It was called, it's called The History of the Jews. The author was Paul Johnson. He wrote this and wrote about this that, you know the name Mark Twain? Mark Twain, in 1867, made a journey at the time to the area called Palestine. We call it Israel today. But in that year, Mark Twain had passed through the land of Israel, we'll call it. And in a writing that he wrote on really just a piece of paper from a hotel that he was staying at, he described what he saw when he traveled through the land of Israel back in that day. This is what he said. It's a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route as we traveled. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. That's just a portion of what Mark Twain wrote about Israel in 1867. There's an expression that we see in the book of Ezekiel. It's an expression that I believe because these are the areas and these are the ways in which God works powerfully and works best. The phrase that we often see throughout Ezekiel is, they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. As a matter of fact, that phrase is used 78 times throughout the Bible. 62 of those times are found here in the book of Ezekiel. They will know that I am the Lord. And you see, these are the things that God does. God wants to display who he is. He wants to take a land that is desolate and he wants to revive it. He wants to restore it. He wants to take a people that have been dispersed from their land and bring them back into their land because then they will know that I am the Lord. And that's what's important for all of us to know. God takes the impossibilities of man and he says, this is what I'm going to do. And not only does he tell us what he's going to do, but then we see and we have seen, even in our lifetime, the fulfillment of these prophecies that were written over 2,600 years ago. Let's, hopefully you're there, Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's read, this speaks of God's promise to bring Israel back into their land. 
Now what's interesting is that before Israel did come back into their land, there was much of the church during a period of church history that theologically they started replacing Israel with the church. It's called replacement theology today, and there's a number of reasons why. But there's a lot of the church at the time that could not wrap their head around this prophecy of how, in fact, God's people that who had been dispersed from their land for over 1,800 years could possibly come back into this desolate land and be restored as a nation. We've seen that in our lifetime as Christians, this prophecy coming to pass. And so now, as we read our Bibles, we say to ourselves, look what God has done, that they may know that I am the Lord. Look at your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, This is the word of the Lord coming to Ezekiel. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and their deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Boy, that's one way to describe it. The deeds and the unfaithfulness of Israel. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land. And for their idols with which they had defiled it. And so I scattered them among the nations. And they were dispersed throughout the country. We know that all of the northern kingdom of Israel in 720 B.C. was taken by the Assyrians into captivity. We know that in 597 B.C. the Babylonians, they took the southern kingdom into captivity for 70 years. We know that in 70 A.D. that the Romans came in under Titus, General Titus, and came in and killed 1.1 million Jews and dispersed the remainder of them throughout the world. God scattered the people whom he loves. It goes on to say, I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And when they came to the nations, when they were dispersed, throughout the Gentile nations that surrounded them, they went and they profaned my holy name. When the nations said to them, to Israel, to the Jews, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his, of his land. But I, have, but I had a concern for my holy name. Make note of that. But I had a concern, God says, for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I did not do this for your sakes, 
O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name. Do you see that? I will sanctify my great name, the Lord says, which has been profaned among the nations. Whenever you see the term nations, it's speaking about every nation outside of Israel. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. We're talking about all the Gentile nations of which God's people were dispersed over the whole world. He goes on to say, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. God said that he would do this, and he has done it. Prophecy has been fulfilled. We've seen this prophecy fulfilled in our lifetime. Israel coming back into their land. Israel has been under Gentile dominion for over 2,600 years. The Gentiles have dominated the people of God. They have persecuted people of God. From 605 B.C. when Daniel was given that dream of the coming Gentile empires to this current day that we're in now, the nation of Israel is under the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles is not going to be finished until the end of the seven-year tribulation period where God at that point is going to return at his second coming and deal with the nations, the Gentile nations of this world. We read in Luke's gospel, which in chapter 21, 24, this is the parallel passage to Matthew 24, which we've already been looking at. Jesus said this to his disciples, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, And be led away into all the nations, captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. God has a timing. God has a perfect timing of when that time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. How much land that God promised Israel. I've got a, a picture of, uh, up here that I can show you. I think we have one. A picture of the land mass. You see that? There's two pictures side by side. It's basically the same picture. But if you see Israel there in all the red, and you see the red line uh, bordering it, that is the land mass that God promised to the nation of Israel. That's how much land God wanted and gave them to possess. But did you know that Israel never possessed all of that? 
Just like we often don't possess everything that God has given to us. All the promises that God has given to you in His Word. Do you hang on to every single one of them? Do you take them to heart? Do you believe? Do you take ground back from the enemy? Because those promises have been given to us and we quite often do the same. We don't get everything that God has given to us because of our lack of faith and trust in Him. But we read in the book of Genesis, we read in Genesis 15, you can turn there, in verse 17, we read about a covenant that God made with Abram and the land. We read, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared to Abram a smoking oven. Now this smoking oven would have been like, possibly like the pillar of cloud that the children of Israel had seen before. It would speak of God's presence. It would speak of God's Shekinah glory. And then he also saw a burning torch. It may be like the, the pillar of fire that they had seen. Or maybe like the burning bush. Like the fire that would consume the sacrifice with the priest. God presented himself there before Abram with two emblems to Abram. Two carcasses, two animals that he would pass through these pieces, these sacrificed animals. He did it before Abram. He did it to make a covenant with Abram concerning this land that God had given to Israel. Why am I making this point? Because as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see not only has God fulfilled His promise to bring Israel back into their land, but He's doing it because of the covenant that He made with His people that He must fulfill. God cannot lie. God cannot renege upon His promises. He must and He will fulfill His covenant that He made with Abram. He says... To your descendants, Abram, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates that you saw in a bit, a, a massive land expanse that God had given. This covenant, we might call it a contract, it'll never fail. It'll never be failed because, you know why? God can't fail. God doesn't fail. And God, in a sense, was saying to Abram with this covenant that he made before him, my name is on the line. My name is on the line for what I have said to you, Abram. You see, this was not a a contract between Abram and God. This was God's contract, God's name, His signature was on the contract that He was going to fulfill what He promised that He would do. And God has done that. You know why I can be so assured that Israel will never lose their land today? Because God promised it. 
They're back in their land today, I believe, never to lose it again. They stand, and the ones that do know the promises of God, they stand also upon that. Israel becomes very emboldened, the ones that believe their Bibles, that God has given this land to us. And no Gentile nation is ever going to take it away from us again. We also read in Genesis 17, 7, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. What's everlasting to you? If I say something is everlasting, does that mean forever and ever to you? I will establish my covenant concerning this land as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien I will give as, as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. What God says, God gets. When God says something, he means it, and it'll never change what God has promised to the nation of Israel. In chapter 36, if you can... Look in uh, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, looking at verse 33. I want to share with you another prophecy concerning the land of Israel. It says in Ezekiel uh, 33, it says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleansed you from all of your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land that we've read about shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So that they will say, the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. The land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And then it says this in verse 36. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, know that I the Lord have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I the Lord have spoken it and I will do it. That's a promise that we can stand upon. God has already done it. God has already fulfilled this prophecy in our lifetime. 
It's been fulfilled. I had an opportunity to go to Israel years ago. I was able to stand right there in, on the, the um, Israeli uh, border to Jordan. Along the Israeli border, there's this miles and miles of these greenhouses that they cultivate all these vegetables and, and all this stuff that Israel grows. And you look across into Jordan, and it's like a barren desert land. If you turn around and you look the other direction, and you look around, around you in Israel, it's green. It's lush. We, they, just these greenhouses, as a matter of fact, they were being nice to the Jordanians, and they were actually going, teaching them the technology that Israel invented to be able to take a dry, desolate land and cultivate it and water it and to produce and be a massive producer in that land. He's going to turn it. It's going to become like the Garden of Eden once again. God has done it. I've got a picture. Well, she got it up there already. There's Israel. Doesn't look too desolate, does it? It's a beautiful country. Full of trees. Full of vegetation. I mean, it, it, it's an incredible place to go see. A fulfillment of God's prophecy. The words that God said he did. We also can see in the book of Ezekiel another prophecy in chapter 37 where Ezekiel was given a vision of a valley of dry bones. And these dry bones would begin to come back to life again. Israel would once again be back in their land. And this valley of dry bones would come alive. Look at Ezekiel chapter 37, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me, this is Ezekiel, and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. I think I have a picture there. Give you a little graphics. It was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. Ezekiel is getting this vision, this valley of dry bones. The Lord having him walk through the midst of this valley as he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely 
I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. If you're wondering who these dry bones belong to, look at verse 11 in that chapter. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. He tells us right there who the dry bones are. It's the house of Israel. He says in verse 13, then you shall know, here it is, then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O oh, my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And then again, then you shall know that I am the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, says the Lord. Have you ever been blown away by God when he does a miracle? You see, when God does something this miraculous, it should blow our minds. What we have seen happened in Israel, the restoration of the land, the people of Israel, the Jews coming back into their land, should make us go, wow, look at our God. That you would know that he is the Lord. That you would know that he is able. That should have an effect on your personal walk with Jesus Christ even now. God shows Ezekiel through this vision that this land of Israel is going to be inhabited, re-inhabited once again. It's not going to be as Mark Twain walked through and couldn't find a soul. Couldn't even find a Bedouin. But it was going to be inhabited again by God's people. Do you know that that's never really happened with any other nation? For a nation to be dispersed from their land for 1,800 years and then to come back into their land as prophesied, and become a nation again? It's never happened. But it's only happening because God said that it would happen. God never fails. God never reneges upon his promises. And he won't. We know that the Jews that came back into their land it was actually the start. They came from Russia. They came from Romania. They began a small journey back. And as a matter of fact, in 1948, by the time that Israel became a, a nation, a recognized nation, the state of Israel, there was only 600,000 Jews that were in the the, the country there in the nation of Israel. Only 600,000. Today, 
there are over 7 million Jews that are back in the land. There's another 2 million of Arabs that are living there, about 9 million people. To give you a perspective on that, the state of North Carolina has 10.5 million people in it. So think about the amount of Jews that have made their way from all parts of the world back to their land as prophesied by the Lord. We might say of these prophecies that we're reading this morning that they're the most significant fulfilled prophecies in our day. That we've had the privilege of seeing God do. But God's not done with Israel. That's the point. It's why I'm taking you back to this so that when we go forward in the book of Revelation, you're going to realize that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He has a plan. He's going to save a remnant of his people. Not because they're faithful. Not because they've been done everything right. But because God is faithful to his promises. God is not done with Israel. As a matter of fact, those 7 million Jews are back in their land today. Did you know that a huge population of the nation of Israel today claim to be atheists? Did you know that there are majority of the Jews that are back in their land today are there in unbelief? They still don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah. They're still awaiting the coming Messiah. And that's why Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 24, do not be deceived. The number one thing that he warned his people, the nation of Israel about, is deception. And when that Antichrist comes on the scene, when he comes on as a false Messiah, when he comes into that and makes that pact, that treaty with Israel, there are going to be many that are going to buy into the lie. But they're back in their land. But they're there only primarily physically. But God wants to do something more. God wants to do something spiritual in Israel. God wants to change their hearts. God wants to reveal Himself to them again. And He will. You see, God's ultimate plan for Israel is that they would be saved. That He would save a remnant of His people. You see, that's a God of mercy, isn't it? That's a God of patience. That's a God of grace. That's a God who cannot renege on His covenants and promises. This is the God who also promises you and I that I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that? We should all be saying amen. Amen. Paul wrote, in the book of Romans concerning Israel's future. He wrote in Romans 11, 11, He says, I say then, has the Jew stumbled that they should fall? 
And Paul says, certainly not. He answers the question that he asks. Should they stumble that they would fall completely? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Raise your hand if you're a Jew here. I don't see any Jews with us. Then you're all Gentiles. Raise your hand if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Praise the Lord. Salvation has come to you Gentiles. Jealousy has risen up in the face of my people Israel. Because you Gentiles now are believers in the Messiah that they rejected. He goes on to say in verse 12, Now if their fall is the riches for the world, and their failure the riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, as much as I am an apostle, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy, now he's speaking of his fellow Jews, that I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, my fellow Jews, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Ezekiel, can these bones live again? Is what he was asked as he wandered through that valley of dry bones. Can these bones live again? And the answer is yes. God doesn't want to just bring them back into the land physically. God wants to save a remnant of His people, Israel. Chapter 36 and 37. It's come to pass. The prophecies have been fulfilled, but they're not complete yet. God's not done. The completion of those prophecies are yet to come. As a matter of fact, more Jews are still making their way back into their land. As a matter of fact, there will be a remnant of God's people that will be saved during the tribulation period, as well as many Gentiles that have rejected Christ. Ezekiel... 38 and 39 are also chapters that are still future. Ezekiel prophesied about a coming invasion against Israel, which I see as still a future event. There is coming a day. You've maybe heard of it as the Battle of Gog and Magog. There's coming a day when these Gentile nations are going to invade and attack the nation of Israel. The first thing that 
I would want to say when people call it the battle of Gog and Magog, is that it's, number one, not really a battle. Because God is going to intervene supernaturally against the enemies of Israel on the mountains of Israel. He is going to destroy Israel's enemies. And I believe it's going to be done in a supernatural way. We might better call it an invasion upon the nation of Israel. I also would want to make the point, because there is some that interpret this particular battle of Gog and Magog as being the same battle that is going to be fought at the end of the tribulation period called the Battle of Armageddon, and they put the two together. What I see is the characteristics of both of these battles, if you put them side by side in what's transpiring, they're completely, the characteristics are completely different. I shared with you last week that I believe that it's very possible that this invasion upon Israel could happen right after the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation period that it's going to happen during that time we as a church may never with our physical eyes see this event transpire some people do place it as a possibility to happen before the rapture either way i tend to lean that it's going to be after the rapture that this is going to transpire but keep in mind that it's also very possible that after the church is raptured, that there's going to be a period of time uh, that is going to transpire before the Antichrist makes a peace agreement with the nation of Israel. It could be during this time, during that lapse of time, that the nations that surround Israel may come down and seek to invade the nation of Israel. This battle, this invasion uh, that we read about here, I believe is also a significant prophecy for us to know and to understand. Remember, um, well, let's, let's first off, let's read, and I think I have the, the scripture on the screen. Let's read Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, have you ever wondered why Israel is in the spotlight? Have you ever wondered why Israel is under persecution like they are? Have you ever wondered why there is so much anti-Semitism that's in our world against the Jew? And it's growing, even in our day, we're seeing that grow. It's because there is a real satanic battle. There is things that go behind the scenes that we don't see. There is a spiritual battle against God's people, Israel, that we don't even see with our physical eyes. 
Israel is now back in their land. Do you think the enemy likes that? I think the enemy hates that. That there are physical Jews back in their land. I think he hates that. And every time you turn on your news and you watch what's going on between the fighting between Israel and the Palestinians, keep in mind that there is a spiritual battle that is raging there as you watch the events taking place. This tiny little nation, it's, by landmass, it's about the size of New Jersey. A small little nation that has this whole world stirred to its core. How is that? It's because it's spiritual. There's the spiritual implications to what's going on. Any part of the church that doesn't see that, they're blinded. If the church doesn't see that, if a Christian doesn't see that, they're blinded in light of what we just read in Ezekiel. There is a spiritual battle that is raging against God's children, against God's people, Israel. Seven million Jews, seven million Jews in their land today. Listen to what Zechariah chapter 12 verse 2 says. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. All the surrounding peoples is speaking about the Gentile nations that surround Israel. When they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to and it shall happen in that day. Make note of that whenever you see in that day. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who will heave it away will surely be cut in pieces though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. We see that now. Look how the United States of America is even handling Israel right now. Look at the nations around and how they handle the nation of Israel. Even those that claim to be their allies. It's spiritual. In that day, verse 4, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Why will God allow this to happen? Why is God going to intervene into that invasion against his own people, Israel? That they may know that I am the Lord. That this world, that the nations of this world, the Gentile nations and the nation of Israel themselves, that they will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 38, if you were to read the whole chapter, and we, well, we'll read it, but we're not going to have much commentary on it. But it is, again, this battle, this invasion, we'll call it, that is going to come down upon Israel. The first part is the alliance of the nations that are going to gather against it in verses 1 to 6. Look at your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all of your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Togomar from the far north and all of its troops, many people are with you. What makes these particular names that we read about in Ezekiel here a little challenging for people that study prophecy and study their Bibles is that ancient names and regions they change. And sometimes it's hard to identify these ancient names with what nations are we talking about that surround Israel. God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel, set your face against Gog. Now Gog, we know, is the leader of the land of Magog. It's not a personal name that's given to a man. His name is Gog. It's not his personal name. It's actually a title that is given to this leader. He uh, is given this identity to Ezekiel. 
one who is going to be the one who is going to lead these other troops against Israel. We know that he is of the land of Magog. Now Magog is the land, and in ancient times, this name was for an area that was located, and I think I have a map, it was located between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, north of Israel, up in that area there. This land that is called Magog. It's in the area of modern-day Russia and also parts of Turkey and Iran. I want you to just get this down in your mind. This alliance, these nations that are going to come together and be led by this God. Again, it's a title, like a, like a pharaoh, or like a czar, or like a kaiser. This is a title of a, of a leader at the time. And I believe a leader that is going to come from the north. Magog was the second son of the seven sons of Jephthah, who was Noah's son. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. Jephthah was one of Noah's sons who would be the start of the Europeans, that section of the world. Magog was a land, but also a name that some say were given to a people group. Now the historian Josephus, he identified the offspring of Magog as the Scythians, a name that was used in antiquity for people who dwelt north of the Black Sea. And so we're just trying to get in our mind, where are these people coming from? And who is this Gog, this leader, that is going to take this band of other troops to invade Israel? Who's the one leading the invasion? I shared that there's a lot of differing opinions over some of these ancient names, but... Just for your own interest, Rosh means by definition the head. The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now he's not only called a Gog, but he's called a prince. Rosh means the head. Rosh by many Bible students has been thought to be the ancient name for modern Russia. In Ezekiel's day, there's evidence that there was a group of people known variously as Rash or Rashu or Ras who lived in what is today southern Russia. Meshach is thought to be modern-day Moscow. Some people differ on that. Some people don't agree with that interpretation. Russia being, or Moscow being Russia's capital city. Tubal is believed to be modern day Tobolsk. 
a major city in the Ural Mountains of Siberia, located in Russia, just north of Afghanistan. Tubal, Meshach, Rosh. Others have these place names that are in the region of present-day Turkey. Turkey is just north of Israel. But here's what's important. What's important about these names as we look at it, even if you might have a differing opinion of who it might be, what we do know is that this leader comes from the north. And if you look directly north to the biggest country that really could be a possibility of coming down and leading a nation of other nations' proxies, Russia would probably be the one. They're also hand-in-hand hand with Iran. They're hand-in-hand hand with Syria. They're hand-in-hand hand with every... These are proxy countries that the nation of Russia uses for their own good. And I believe that it's going to come to a point where they're going to come to take a spoil. They're going to come to down upon the nation of Israel because they have intentions that are evil. Look what it says in verse 4. I will turn you around, Gog, and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all of your army horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with buckler shields, all of them handling swords. Now a hook in Hebrew, it, it actually means a feather. It's like a hook or a ring that they would put into their captives' noses and then drag them out into captivity. It's like a, a, a ring that you would put into a bull's nose when you're wanting to bring them and move them around, this massive animal. These hooks in the jaws is plural. And it has to do, I believe, with God's control over these nations. God is going to be in control of the invading armies that are going to come down against his own people, Israel. Why will God do that? Because God wants to save a remnant of his people. Because he loves them. He loves his people and he will be faithful to them in spite of their unfaithfulness. Who's coming with God? Verse 5. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Now these are a little bit easier to recognize. Iran is modern day. Uh, Iran is, it, Persia is modern day Iran. Get it backwards. Persia, ancient Persia, is modern day Iran. Ethiopia, I have, I have a map, I think. Another one before that. It kind of shows, if you look at the, the surrounding nations around Israel there, we know that there is Ethiopia, also known as Cush in your Bible, is modern-day Sudan. So I want you to look at these nations that are surrounding. You know what's unique about Sudan? Islamic. There's Libya, or Put, is another ancient name. And according to ancient Babylonian history, it's the area or the land west of Egypt, which could be modern-day Libya, 
and maybe going even as far as Algeria and Tunisia. What's characteristic of these nations? They're all Islamic. We also have Gomer and all of its troops, the House of Togomar, and from the far north and all of its troops. It says, many people are with you. It doesn't even identify. That could either be the, the, the size, the volume of the army coming against, or it could be that there are some nations that are not even listed in this. Many people with you. This is going to be a big event. It's going to be supernaturally intervened upon by God. It's not going to be a great battle. I don't even know if Israel is going to have to raise a weapon. We're going to see that, I believe, this world is going to see that God is going to supernaturally intervene for his people, Israel. The intentions of Israel's enemies. I want to just read to you and we'll close with this. The intentions of Israel's enemies in verse 7. Prepare yourself and be ready. You and all of your companies that are gathered about you. And be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years, which I believe is a future event. This hasn't happened yet. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword. And gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. Which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Then he says in verse 9, You, speaking about Gog, you, Gog, will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all of your troops and many people with you. And then it tells us that Gog is going to be given a premeditated evil plan. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling with walls and having neither bars nor gates. Why? To take plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Israel has much. They have natural gas out in the Mediterranean. They have even the, the possibility of oil in the land. You have the Dead Sea that has Wealth beyond measure of the minerals that are there. There is much. And not only that, but strategically for the Middle East, God gave Israel the central piece of real estate in all of the world. They want it. Russia, I believe, if they're the ones, the Gog, the, the leader of all this, they want it. 
and not only that, but every Islamic country that surrounds Israel today, their mantra is that they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Is it a spiritual battle? Yes, it is. They want to destroy God's people. Will it happen? No, it won't, according to God's word. It shall come to pass, verse 18, at that same time, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake, at my presence. That sounds pretty supernatural to me. That sounds to me like a direct intervention by God on behalf of his people, Israel. The steep places, the mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall. And every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all of my mountains. He's talking about the mountains that surround Israel. Says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Why? Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Is God going to do this? This day, this event that we're reading about here, Ezekiel 38 and 39, you can read more of it chapter 39 on your own that day that event is yet to come but it's going to fall in line with what we're going to continue on as we go on next week lord willing we're going to be in revelation chapter 7 and it's going to be the uh, sealing of the 144,000 which are all jews 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of israel sealed by god God has a plan for Israel throughout the whole seven-year tribulation period. We're going to see that. And so let's all, uh, let's all stand, have uh, Kyle come up and close us in a song. I felt the need to step away from Revelation this morning, and I'll do that probably a, a couple more times as we're going through it. Because these are things, these are important prophecies. As I spent a little time in Matthew 24 and Daniel 9, these are important prophecies that you need to understand as we go forward in, in Revelation. And so, anyway, let's lift our voices to the Lord. If you're here and you need prayer, come down. Come up and see me. Come and see Kyle. Uh, don't leave here if you're in need of prayer. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
If you're not 100% convinced and you're here this morning, I can tell you that if the rapture happens tonight and you haven't received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if that hasn't happened in your life, you're going to go into the tribulation period. You will enter into the tribulation period. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, there will still be a chance for you during that time. But let me say this. If you think it's hard to try and make a decision for Christ now, wait till the tribulation period begins. Then you're going to see how hard it will be. And there will be many that are going to have to be martyred if you make a stand for Jesus Christ. I encourage you, if you don't know the Lord, come up and see me. Let's pray. Let's receive Christ today so you know in your heart if that rapture happens, you know where you're going, that you're going to be with the Lord. And so let's worship.